Hi, this is JP Mack, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Okay, so as I, as I was preparing for this podcast, trying to think of a subject, and I was trying to think of one, because um, there's so much in news that's current. You have Afghanistan uh, going on uh, as we speak. Um, you have a pull-off from Afghanistan that's gone terribly wrong by pretty much any standard um, but I talked about that last week really not too much has changed on that front and I just recently did a whole series of podcasts uh, reviewing basically in general all of my favorite topics to cover on this podcast so if you want to go back a couple weeks uh, there's a series of podcasts on lessons learned so far. Um, I think it's pretty good. It's a pretty good overview of everything I talk about. So if you want like the Cliff Notes version and you don't want to go through, um, I don't know, like at this point, like 70-odd uh, podcasts and you just want to hit the highlights, then you can listen to that series, the three-part series I made, uh, goes over uh, what conservatism is and isn't, goes over the idea of human rights, um, talks a little bit about uh, fiscal conservatism, and I talk about um, the idea of uh, how uh, conservatism and has been affected or or what the conservative view on the COVID situation, COVID crisis is. So I went over the COVID crisis on, in the last installment. So appreciate it if you go back. Um, said I highly recommend it. I mean, I highly recommend any of my uh, podcasts, of course, but particularly those, those three, a three-part series I did. Um, I think that gives a good overview of all of the topics that I cover here on the podcast. So, and if you have a specific uh, request for a topic, just let me know. Um, contact me online, jpmac at libertyrelearn.com, or um, however your podcast provider has set up. I know on Anchor you can give a voice message, but contact me if you have any ideas for future shows and try and incorporate them. So, so much going on, um, but particularly with Afghanistan, not much has changed from that. Suffice to say that still bad, still pretty grim. President gave a recent speech, basically stating he said said several times that he was going to leave Americans behind in Afghanistan. He didn't say it in so many words, but he strongly implied that that was going to be the case, and that seems to be what will indeed happen. And of course, you know. Um, we talked about um, giving up Bagram Howe. That was 
was a mistake. Uh, I think the historians, years from now, will, they will pinpoint that decision as one of the worst decisions made by any um, American president and his um, advisors. Um, and I, I think, obviously, someone should be fired from that. A lot of people think that the president should resign in disgrace. Uh, I actually think that he should fire his top military advisors and uh, his uh, secretary of state. And uh, I think you know, I'm not in the habit of giving advice to Democrats, especially this Democrat president, but I think if it would show leadership, a little bit of backbone, if he called someone on the carpet and and asked for their resignation, I think he would actually come across as leader that way, but he, he's not going to do it. I don't, I don't know why. Um, I can speculate, we can speculate that maybe he's not in charge. Um, it seems to be a White House by committee, you know, a lot of people advising him in the background, and since no one's advising him to take the step, he's not going to take it on his own. So, but that's just my opinion on that. Um, we'll probably talk about more of that in the future. Um, but right now, I want to talk about more, get back to more of the general topics talking generally uh, about conservatism and so looking for something uh, I said trying to break away from the current events even though that they're important uh, so trying to look for something with a little bit more uh, I don't know staying power that's going to be relevant years from now not just a, a few days or a few months from now but something that's going to be relevant years from now. And so I was looking, I came across this article. It was posted on Facebook, but actually came out back in 2013. And it comes from the Independent Institute's, their uh, blog called The Beacon. And so if you want to check that out, uh, looks like it's at, uh, blog.independent.org. Uh, don't know too much about the Independent Institute other than uh, a kind of a libertarian think tank. Um, they seem to give voice a lot to um, what we call the classical liberal position and libertarian position. So it's not strictly a conservative um, like Heritage Foundation is, but sort of uh, more libertarian leaning. So if that's what you like, um, I said don't know too much about them, but um, they have some good things in here for both libertarians and conservatives. And so this, this one article caught my interest um, because a couple of weeks ago one of my friends had put out a meme, meme on Facebook and it said in 1913 
uh, Americans kept 100% of their earnings. And of course, somebody uh, had to fact check this. You know, the Facebook people, uh, being who they are, they had to go and fact check it because they can't possibly have something positive. You know, I mean, they're they're totally into down with the uh, progressivism and leftism. So they they had to nip this little meme in the bud. And so they fact-checked it, and uh, long story short, in 1913, that's when we ratified uh, the amendment, I forget which one, but it's in this article I'm going to read, so. Anyway, in 1913, that's basically when we got the federal income tax was established. And... So, you know, so on. This is one of the things that I absolutely hate about social media is they have to fact check. They what the, what they do is they attempt to nullify an entire message of a meme or a posting or a story by just picking one picking off one uh one element to it. Sometimes they even go so far as to create a straw man argument. Meaning they they argue, they say it's misleading. And this is why, and they make a straw man argument. So it's not an argument that's being made by whoever did the meme or whoever wrote the story. It's they don't want you to get the right idea, basically. And so they'll fact check it, and if they can't uh, find anything factually wrong with the story itself. In other words, all of the, the fact checks are true, and verifiable, and all of the opinions are based upon the facts. Um, they will find something that's not in the story, maybe something implied, but it's not actually presented in fact in the story, and they'll fact check that. So that's their little game, their little trick they play. And they do it a lot. Uh, if you look at the fact checks, I always, not always, but um, I like to fact, the, like read the actual uh, fact checks, whether it's from Snopes or whoever it is, to see what they're trying to get at, see see if how correct it. And I can tell you, most of the time, it's a straw man argument that they're saying. Basically, it says that the story didn't point out this point that they want to make. That's part of their argument. That's one of their talking points. And because this story didn't present one of their talking points, then it's misinformation or disinformation. So that's the game that they play. It's a intellectually dishonest. It's a it's a um, it's a fallacy. It's a it's an intellectual fallacy that they they do. It's very common with fact checking. So anyhow, I there was this meme out. Um, basically, it said that in 1913, the Americans kept 100% of their pay, and of course that was fact checked and told 
be false or mostly false or whatever. Um, and it was it was a claim that kind of would make you skeptical because obviously you know there would have been some sort of tax or tariff. Um, I know prior to 1913, most of our or what we call taxes came in the way of tariffs. So treating, you know, taxes on goods coming into the country. So, but there would have been sales tax. There would have been local sales tax. So technically it was, it would be true that the American probably didn't keep 100% of their earnings. They probably um, spent it in some sort of sale tax, sales tax, depending on where they were. But anyhow, they they go, you know, the fact check was minute detail to try and dis- discredit the whole story. And so I decided to research myself. I was like, okay, what actually happened in 1913? And it turns out, and I was not surprised to find this, but because um, I suspected it, but I wasn't sure. turns out that 1913 is the year that uh, Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated president. So Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated in March of that year. Um, and prior to that, Basically, there was a lot of things that we kind of almost take for granted today, but it's part of the political machine, aggressive, you know, things like the IRS and, and things of that nature. There's so many things that didn't exist before 1913. And this article um, that appears in The Beacon, and this was written, keep in mind, this was written in March of... Uh, 2013. So you're going to hear it refers to the centennial of this occurrence. But yeah, basically, it talks about Woodrow Wilson and when he was voted in office. And of course, most of you know Woodrow Wilson is a person who promised us, promised that we World War One, and obviously, uh, two years later, you know, a few years later, he broke that promise and, and uh, America entered World War One on the side of the Allies. But before that, um, so not as well publicized, I guess, is some of the things that happened under his administration. And so the title, title of this article is called 1913, The Final Days of the Old Regime in the United States. And I'm just going to read from it. It's, it's fairly short, so I'll, I'll post this online. Um, it's by uh, Robert Higgs, who, at least at the time, I don't know what he's doing now, but he was a retired senior fellow in the political economy at the Independent Institute, author or editor of over 14 independent and founding editor of Independence Quarterly Journal, The Independent Review. So, there you go. That's 
basically now you know as much as about uh, Robert Higgs as I do. But he did he did write a very um, interesting article. Okay, so 1913, the final days of the old regime in the United States. In 1913, exactly a century ago, the United States was a flourishing, economically advanced country. Its real output per capita was the world's highest. It produced a great abundance of agricultural products and was a leading exporter of cotton, wheat, and many other farm products. It also had the world's largest industrial sector producing as much manufactured output as France, Germany, and the United Kingdom combined. It brought forth new technologies, technological marvels almost daily, and its cities featured well-paved and well-lighted streets, automobiles, modern sewage, and water supply systems, central electrical supply systems, skyscrapers, streetcars, subways, and frequent inner-city train service. During the preceding 50 years, its real income per capita had grown by about 2% per year on average, and its total real output by about 4% per year on average. All races, classes, and religions participated in this progress in 1913. The rate of unemployment was 4.3%, and the price level was roughly the same as its average during the 19th century. Yet, as the United States in 1913 had no federal income tax, no central bank, no social security taxes, no general sales taxes, no Securities and Exchange Commission, no Eagle Employment Opportunity Commission, no Department of Health and Human Services, no National Labor Relations Board, no federal this, that, and the other, as far as I can see. Except for restrictions on Chinese and Japanese immigration, nothing but perfunctory health examination impeded the free flow of foreigners into the country, and hundreds of thousands arrived each year, mostly from Europe. All governments combined spent an amount equal to about 7% of GDP. The federal government's part amounted to only about 3% of GDP. Local governments were the biggest actors in terms of regulations and expenditures. Okay, I just want to break in here and say uh, the ex federal expenditure as GDP is over 100% for this coming fiscal year. Uh, we just passed two huge or several huge uh, multi-trillion dollar bills were and Congress is trying to pass another, uh, you know, like $3.4 trillion um, spending bill. And so, just for reference, our GDP, or 
our expenditure is more than our entire GDP. So uh, let's provide that for a little bit of reference. Uh, getting back to the article, uh, all government combined, all governments combined spent an amount equal to about 7% of GDP. The federal government's part amounted to only about 3% GDP. Local, local governments were the biggest actors in terms of regulations and expenditures. Average Americans had no regular contact with the federal government aside from the postman and little or none with state and local governments aside from school teachers and the public streets. The country was on an official gold standard. Gold and silver coins circulated as normal media of exchange and gold certificates issued by individual commercial banks as well as their checking accounts served the public for making larger transactions. Never before had so much prosperity been attained by a comparably large population, and never uh, before had so many people enjoyed such spacious freedom to live their lives and go about their business as they choose in the context of where voluntary transactions dominated economic affairs and governments were relatively inconsequential factors in the economy and society. Such was the garden in which the serpents of war would soon whisper in the ears of politicians and government officials, who shortly afterward would blast the suspicious scene to smithereens. The old regime would then be lost forever as the war's pervasive legacies insinuated themselves permanently into economic and political life. Gone Forever was a world that, notwithstanding its many defects and crying needs, had been traveling a short road to improvement and human needs large, largely within nurturing spontaneous order. Henceforward, the intrusion of politics and governments into ever more aspects of social and economic life would poison the people's public affairs and turn them away from creative activity and towards more and more uh, political conflict, suppression of freedom, and plunder of one another. And then at the end, he puts at this addendum, which you can figure out why he had to put this. I wrote that the United States in 1913 had no federal income tax and no central bank. Yes, this was the case when the year began. However, on February 3rd, the 16th Amendment of the Constitution was ratified, and on October 3rd, as part of a broader revenue measure, government enacted a federal income tax law. Tax returns under this act were due by March 1st for the 10 months beginning on March 1st, 1913. So in early 1914, the government began to collect the amounts due to 
the for the 1913 tax year. Readers may find the tax form 1040 for 1913 interesting. It consists of three pages plus a page of instructions. Under the schedule, taxes were due from only a small fraction of the population. More than 96% of the people owed nothing. Their tax rate was 1% of taxable income, with surtaxes rising to a maximum of 6% on substantially higher incomes. In pursuing the tax rates, bear in mind that the dollar had about 20 times more purchasing power in 1913 than it has today. And oh, so, okay, so today, just so you remember, would have been 2013, not 2021. Also, on December 23rd, 1913, the government enacted the Federal Reserve Act. Considerable time was required to organize the Fed. However, it did not begin its operation for about a year. Okay, so, and I thought it was very interesting just to pinpoint what happened and because uh, 13, 1913, and really, um, you'd have to assume that a little slightly before that, um, you know, you had, um, you know, the Bolsheviks in Russia and the Mensheviks, and you had Marxism was on the rise in Europe, socialism was very popular in Europe, uh, in England, and in Germany in particular. Uh, socialism was really getting traction as uh, some sort of economic uh, and uh, social philosophy. And so this is kind of at the height of, I guess, what we call um, Marxism or the classical Marxist period. This is, I guess you call this the golden age of Marxism. So it's no, no surprise that these progressive ideas popped up uh, during this, you know, one to two decade period in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. And as, as the, um, the blog mentions that um, there, it was the... Um, passage of the, uh, the 16th Amendment, I believe. Uh, yeah, 16th Amendment uh, was ratified allowing, um, basically allowing for uh, federal taxes to be collected. Of course, this is all in response um, the author doesn't go into the great detail about the reasons, but apparently he felt that, you know, there was this rising nationalism he saw in Europe. And of course, in let's see, 1914, if I'm not mistaken, World War One began. Uh, the United States would enter the war in 1917. And it would stay, and it would finally end in 1918. 
And so this is the same 10 year period as World War One. Okay, so use that for reference. So you had all these uh, national powers um, in Europe competing and some say it was just inevitable before there was some excuse for you know the whole thing the whole tinder block tinder box to just go up in flames and uh world war one started and of course a lot of this well it was due to i think things but it was the you know marxism was on the rise as i mentioned Soviet Union, or at least um, Russia, you know, Tsarist Russia in 1917, I think it was 1922, if not mistaken, when the Soviet Union actually started, um, when, you know, after a brief period of civil war, when they were between the falling of the Tsar and the rise of Soviet Russia, there was a interim period where there was a bit of a, a civil war in Russia. But anyhow, so you had that happen. And of course, uh, socialism was really huge in um, the newly um, industrialized countries of Europe. So that being France and uh, Britain Germany, most of all, and and so there there was kind of a version of the Civil War in, I guess, Europe at the time, where it was the agrarian countries versus the more industrialized countries. So, just as um, the American Civil War featured agrarian states versus the more industrial states of the north um, so too was it around this time period where in Europe you had uh, industrial states versus the uh, agrarian states in Europe and so that was one of the things that set off tensions um, a lot of people left the farms for jobs in the factories and of course, you know, there's all the the exploitation and you know the monopolies that were created and all the problems that occurred as growing pains as the industrial revolution got into full swing in the early twentieth century. So you you basically had a kind of a tinderbox situation in the first two decades of the 20th century and that led as we know to world war one and again many historians believe that world war one was inevitable you know, if it wasn't the archduke ferdinand being assassinated probably would have been someone else probably would have been some other excuse by someone to to uh, launched this and as I said the uh, Higgs the writer of this um, doesn't really go into detail I'd be interested in the finding 
more about uh, maybe reading some more of his works and um, seeing how he came to conclusion that that the you know the prelude to World War One was the catalyst for all of this. I suspect I don't know, and I'd have to find out more about this. But I suspect what happened was in Europe the taxation was well they already had taxation uh, in Europe, of course, um, income taxes. And of course, the uh, the Communist Manifesto called for uh, progressive income taxes. So, income taxes uh, connected to one's income, paying different rates. People making different incomes pay different rates. So, as opposed to a flat tax, which everybody pays one rate no matter how much you make, um, Communist Manifesto called for a progressive income tax. And so that's was the idea. And so I suspect that if you dig deeper, you'll find that what these European countries were doing were instituting taxes um, to basically finance their war machines at home. And so although it doesn't mention it in the article, here. I think that's what he's alluding to. And of course it wouldn't have been presented. You know, people in Europe probably didn't present the taxes as, you know, we're building an arsenal for freedom or democracy or whatever. Um, they probably did say that too. They may well have. But they probably presented it as some sort of social program the rich are going to give back to the poor, um, you know, giving the more collectivist ideas that were new at that time. Um, you know, they had experimentation with these collectivist ideas. And so it was probably sold in that way as a way for basically our redistribution wealth, which is what, what really gets at the heart of having income tax and national income tax gets at is a re redistribution of wealth because before that uh, taxes were only for funding government services what the conservative or libertarian would consider essential uh, valid um, forms of government services you know providing for the common defense building roads and bridges um, basically things of that nature, things you know, we would call infrastructure today and national defense. And of course, you know, the whole machinery of government itself, you know, has to be paid for, you know, the salaries of the congress congressmen, the president and, and whoever the elected officials. Um, but that was basically it back then. And so 1913 marks the year where you have this explosion and basically uh, this lurch into a collectivist or a leftist um, direction 
probably wasn't considered that at the time, but that's what it was in, in retrospect. Um, remember that um, you had uh, socialism, communism were the big things back then. And fascism didn't spring from socialism until uh, a decade later. So after World War One is when you have fascism coming. So, but uh, the roots of socialism were already planted by the time 1913 runs, uh, rolls around. And of course, you have Woodrow Wilson, who was not a big fan of free markets. He was not a, a fan of the Constitution. He thought that the Constitution was outdated and that uh, he basically looked for more... Uh, he believed in kind of utopian society where the government, you know, experts in the government would rule the people on their behalf because the, the, the people, the ordinary person, couldn't be entrusted with the right to vote and the, the right to self-determination. So Wilson thought that it should be left to experts in the government um, to take care of that, and he imagined um, this utopian society. And of course, that's related into what we call now leftism, or you know, socialism, or eco-fascism, or just straight up fascism. But it all le links into that. And so, if you want to kind of, if you're going to go back in time try and change the past to make the future better. Um, that 1913, actually 1912, because 1912 would have been the year where the campaign for uh, Wilson, you know, that would have been when Wilson was elected. So you'd have to go back to 1912. Um, but I think it was a very um, good article, and it has a lot of links here so um, you know to different stories uh, so I guess this would be almost like a teaser piece I guess to get you to um, dig deeper into um, what happened and of course just click on like the first link here links to the Mises Institute, which is another one. Um, I guess Robert Higgs wrote for the Mises Institute too. Uh, not surprising, their Mises Institute is uh, Institute, another libertarian kind of think tank, think tank, think tank um, sort of operation. So it's no surprise that he would have um, wrote for them too. And so, so there you go, you have more things. If you, I always encourage people to do some investigating on their own. Um, so I would, uh, I would lead them to uh, the Mises Institute um, to find out more, particularly if, if more uh, the 
liberal or libertarian leaning. Uh, but also for the conservative, we'll find something interesting in it. And uh, let's see what he has to read. This is, looks like another short piece here, which Gray, he likes to read. He likes to write short pieces, um, which is perfect for my attention span. Um, so he writes in the Mises Institute, uh, the transformation of the American economy, 1865 through 1914. So it's the post-Civil War era, basically. So construction and into going from uh, reconstruction into the industrial age. Uh, so and I have no idea what this article has, other than what the title says, but it sounds interesting, so... Let's read it. Uh, again, this is by Robert Higgs. Uh, the Gilded Age, lasting from 1865 to World War I, was an era of economic growth never before seen in the history of the world. The standard of living age was born during this time of phenomenal transition. Lives lengthened, wealth exploded, middle class live better than kings a century earlier. And yet this period in history is mostly ignored in the classroom. Those who do address it are keen to debunk the overall trends and instead focus on the plight of small sectors generally seeking to debunk the idea that it was a period of growth. The final response to this revisionist view was written by a young Robert Higgs, fresh out of graduate school and not yet exposed to the Austrian literature. He used the tools he had to shore up the reputation of the Gilded Age and explain that the growth was real and it happened due to free markets and sound money. As a result is a book that still has no match as a rigorous account of the economic history of the time. Okay, so this is a, apparently a book synopsis, and the book is called The Transformation of the American Economy, 1865-1914. So I haven't read it, but if you want to read it, um, sounds pretty interesting don't know what sort of writer Robert Higgs was. Seems kind of straightforward, but who knows? Um, put that on your list of uh, uh, books to buy. and Maybe you can tell me how it is and see if it's worth me reading and doing a review myself. But um, it is interesting that he um, was talking about, uh, this was from 2011, so I think this is still valid today, of course, because it's, you know, you don't know where you're going until you, until you know where you've been, as the saying goes. And so he's talking about in this book and in the 
previous essay that I just read uh, about the very genesis of our what I would call our slide into authoritarian socialist collectivism um, probably find a better catch-all phrase than that but um, that will have to do for now um, and so it's it's very interesting to see how America and the free world was run prior to it and it's interesting to see that there is a kind of a cutoff line in the um, 1913, 1914 uh, era that um, apparently clearly de delineates, in the, in the opinion of Robert Higgs at least, um, are the kind of free market society that was envisioned by our founding fathers and what we have today um, with the institution of progressivism um, which you, you see coming to its fruition today and so now we are unlucky enough to basically see the fruits of all of this progressiveness and know that uh, it all started more than a century ago so when we talk about things um, and, and you know I always want to relate this back to what it means to the conservative or what it means to the libertarian and so what what does this mean is we're kind of in I guess the end stages of well end stages of this period or if you were an optimist and you were a socialist or, or leftist um, you would say this is a dawn of a new era of collectivism or socialism. We probably wouldn't call it collectivism. We'd probably call it social justice or some euphemism, but that's what it is. It's, it's collectivism um, by other, any other name. It is authoritarian uh, collectivism. And so, real quick, um, brings me to my next thought which kind of it's an idea that I came up with very recently trying to kind of pin down because I saw and I've talked about in previous podcasts about what they're doing in Australia with the, in the name of COVID-19 and also in New Zealand they have some pretty authoritarian things going on and with regards to COVID and so it's interesting to uh, see them going on this authoritarian streak which I believe at least in Australia probably started officially um, when they lost their right to bear arms such as it was in Australia so that would be somewhere in the 90s somewhere around 1999 if I'm not mistaken but sometime um, in the last 20-30 years 20, about 20 years in Australia um, they lost their right such as it was to bear arms and what I've said many times 
well, I, not too much on the podcast, but definitely in the blog if you go back and read uh, libertyrelearned.com I'll talk about Second Amendment issues. One of the things I say is the thing to ask those people who are advocating for gun rights or, or gun um, control or you know firearms control or banning firearms the thing to ask them is what do they have in mind for us that can only be accomplished by disarming a large segment of the population and now I think we have our answer um, kind of in our test subject in our canary in the coal mine that being Australia we kind of know what they have in mind now very authoritarian form of government of course Australia the more I learn about it um, the more I find that they kind, of, they kind of have authoritarianism in their blood um, one person said I forget who it was that Australians are not just the descendants of prisoners they're also the descendants of the jailers and so we're seeing that being played out now with the COVID-19 they have a very authoritarian streak and what I would want to do what I want to do um, in this just to conclude this podcast is trying to connect leftism to authoritarianism because when you think about it there has been no case at least no, no case that I can think of where you've had a country lurch to the left, either go full kindness, like the, the Russians turning into the Soviet Union. Um, you, you've never had, or China, you've never had uh, a leftist government installed without also the rise of authoritarianism in that country. Um, even in Europe, they have so many laws um, particularly in the EU controlling free trade that's why one of the main reasons that Britain left is because the authoritarianism coming from the EU was just too much to bear for the more liberal minded uh, people in the United Kingdom and so but uh, in Australia they didn't really have that problem um, something sociologically in that commonwealth and basically it seems to be in all of the commonwealth that's really come out in a negative way during the COVID-19 crisis you see for example um, this Canadian minister being arrested sent to jail because he was holding services uh, first inside I believe that church and then outside and you may, may have seen the video of him denouncing this Polish um, person, this Polish pastor, denouncing the uh, uh, people coming in to, I guess, raid him or check him out for COVID-19 violations. He basically kind of kicked him out of his church, saying, "You know, no Nazis are allowed in here." And so, and of course, you have uh, with Trudeau a very leftist government very you wouldn't even, couldn't even call it liberal really it has to, you'd have to call it le, uh, leftist 
as I don't think judo is as liberal in the classical sense. But you have an accompanying uh, rise in authoritarianism, which has expressed itself very negatively because um, the masks have come off and now these people get to uh, do what they want to. They have an excuse to govern in an authoritarian manner. They've always wanted to. And it seems to be a disease that's common among the former or the, the British Commonwealth countries, particularly uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. They all have these draconian measures. And you know, if you see, like in Australia, they have just brutal is the only word for it, um, brutal measures um, being taken with regards to COVID-19. You can't even organize a protest. You can't even support the organization of a protest. So that's how far gone they've gone. And so even though um, uh, Australia reportedly has a um, conservative prime minister now. His name is Morrison, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you have uh, Prime Minister Morrison. Um, he's supposed to be conservative, but he's allowing a lot of very, I would say, tyrannical things to happen in this country. But I think that's due to the way they're government there what we have as a federalist system they have their own version of and apparently their premiers in Australia they're the equivalent of, their, of our governors uh, our state governors um, their premiers have a whole entire um, huge amount of power so by the way if you're in Australia or New Zealand I'd love to hear from you so uh, email me at jpmac at libertyrelearn.com or, um, or uh, through this blog, contact me through the blog. I would love to know if you happen to be in Australia or New Zealand. Um, let me know what's going on. I, I, like to, I, I think that Australia is kind of the test case. They are the canary uh, in the coal mine. And I would say that um, if we don't change course in America, you know, we will, I'd say within five years, we will end up in the same kind of authoritarian regime as they have in Australia, which is basically um, tiredest thing. I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the idea of uh, democratic tyranny, um, apparently it's a thing. Um, it's hard to believe that the people in Australia like it um, because they're definitely you know, they're definitely pro-democratic, but they they've elected these leaders who are just cracking down brutally um, in certain states in Australia and certain um, cities in Australia. You know, having um, total lockdowns of entire cities, entire states, 
over a very few, relatively few number of cases. I mean, some of the numbers that you hear in New Zealand, too, um, closed down basically the entire country for three days. I think they've extended that um, lockdown period, if I'm not mistaken. Um, again, if you have news to this, if you're in New Zealand or Australia, I'd love to hear. Uh, contact me, you know, leave me a voice message uh, through your um, through your podcast provider or an email or you know, some way or, or respond. I'm, I think I'm going to put out something in libertyrelearn.com specifically for those people in Australia and New Zealand. But, you know, um, there are two countries that have, I, you've never seen um, progressivism because um, I don't think the Australians like to think of themselves as um, socialist even though this kind of it blurs the line the, 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 lure, the, the line between progressivism and socialism continues to blur and it's a statism that is um well, it's full. It's full bore statism is what they have. It's, if you can't call it socialism, it's definitely something, something. But anyhow, what I, it, you've never seen leftism uh, incorporated without authoritarianism. You just can't have it because people just don't want to do it. And, you know, a free people who've known freedom all their lives, like Americans, you know, they, and even people in Eastern Europe, you know, they get tired of that, they want to be free, and so it's, it's hard to have less leftism, um, any kind of collectivism, you know, socialism, fascism, or communism, whatever you want to call it, you cannot have that style of government without authoritarianism. And I, I think let that be, if you have one takeaway from this, is that there's no such thing, in my mind, as leftism without authoritarianism. So it's kind of ironic, particularly when you hear people talk about Trump, oh, he's fascist, and and we're free, and, you know, when Biden was elected, oh, we're finally free, and what, we, what are you free of? What could you do? What can you do on March 21st, uh, 2021, that you couldn't do on March 20th when you woke up, or March 19th, 2020? What could you do when, uh, after after Biden became president, that you couldn't do under Trump? What was that freedom? What bond? What chains? What chains of bondage exactly were broken when? Um, Biden was elected because I don't see him. I don't see people trying to be free. Um, so, gotta leave it there. Don't have time. But uh, listen to me at libertyrelearn.com. And thank you as usual for listening. Thanks. Bye.